You're listening to The Relevant Truth Podcast. My name is Roger Mason. This podcast is dedicated to examining biblical truth. The Bible is overflowing with relevant truth useful in our everyday lives. Thus the title, Relevant Truth. The Bible was relevant to those that first heard it through the apostles and prophets. It is also timeless truth, which means that is relevant for us today in the 21st century. It is my hope that through this podcast, you will be both encouraged and challenged as we look at the Bible together. In today's podcast, we'll be looking at Mark chapter 3. In this text, various groups speak out about the ministry of Jesus. Their words are not very encouraging. How did Jesus handle discouragement? This is the big idea in today's podcast. What do we do with discouragement? So let's start reading at Mark chapter 3, starting at verse 10. For he healed many, so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him. And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. Now let's slip down to verse 20. Then the multitude came together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of demons he casts out demons. So they called them to himself, and he said in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If the kingdom of God is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but has an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first bind the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation, because they said he has an unclean spirit. Then his brothers and his mother came, and standing outside, they sent to him, calling him. And a multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who had sat about him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whosoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and mother. John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress is one of history's bestsellers. First published in February 18, 1678, Bunyan tells the story of a pilgrim named Christian who encounters many trials, toils, and triumphs while traveling from the city of destruction to the celestial city. In one memorable scene, Christian finds the pathway difficult, climbing over a fence to walk in a meadowy bypath, 
Eventually the ground grew soggy and was covered with poisonous vines. The sky became black and Christian spent the night huddled under the foot of an oak tree, caught in a downpour. The next morning, giant despair came upon him, captured him, and beat him, and imprisoned him in a dungeon of Doubting Castle, with its grim battlements and thick black walls. Christian tries to sing, but he couldn't. His mood was dungeon dark. Giant despair beats him mercilessly, and he grew weaker each day. He found in his cell a rope, a knife, and a bottle, the tools of suicide, and for a moment he was tempted to end his misery. But one evening, about midnight, he began to pray. And now I'm reading from the book itself. A little before day, good Christian, as one half amazed, break into a passionate speech. What a fool am I, thus to lie in a stinking dungeon, when I may as well walk at liberty. I have a key in my bosom called promise that will, I am sure, open any lock in Doubting Castle. Using the key of God's promise, Christian escaped, never again to fall into the clutches of giant despair or Doubting Castle. As a Christian, we have a key called promise to escape doubt, despair, and discouragement. In today's text, we look at the things which are being said about Jesus. The things said about Jesus were intended by the devil to cause doubt, discouragement, and despair. In the text, we have three groups who have something to say about Jesus. The first group were demons. They said, you are the son of God. In verse 11, surprisingly, they said something complimentary about Jesus, but their words should not be seen as supporting Jesus in any way. Ultimately, these words were used to call into question the identity, ministry, and authority of Jesus by the religious leaders. The second group were Jesus' own family and friends. They said, he is out of his mind, verse 21. They spoke negative words out of love and concern for the well-being of Jesus. Their words only served to tempt Jesus away from doing the will of the Father. The third group were the religious leaders. They said, he has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of demons he casts out demons, verse 22. They spoke negative words, which were strong, harsh, and cruel. A completely untrue accusation intended by the devil to discredit, undermine, and destroy Jesus and his ministry. The opposition and critical words of others often cause doubt, despair, and discouragement. So let's look at how discouragement came to Jesus and how he dealt with this discouragement. First, discouragement comes through discreditation. Verses 11 and 12. The unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. The demons recognized the true status of Jesus as the Son of God. They were greatly threatened by his presence. 
It was the authoritative presence of Jesus which seemed to flush out the demonic wherever he went. Notice that Mark gives us a general statement about Jesus' ministry. And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out. Verse 11. This phrase in verse 11 is in the continuous sense, meaning that the unclean spirits kept falling down before him and kept crying out. It seems from Mark that this was a common occurrence in the ministry of Jesus. In Mark chapter 1, we have a similar event of demons crying out, Let us alone! What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. That's Mark 1 verse 24. Jesus never accepted the testimony of demons and always silenced their speaking. The testimony of demons is untrustworthy. We are told in verse 12, but he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. Jesus didn't want the testimony of demons declaring him as the Son of God. Their testimony was not intended to do Jesus any good. Jesus desired men to recognize him as the Messiah based on the teachings of Scripture, not based on demonic testimony. I believe that even though the demonic testimony was true, it was intended to destroy, hurt, and to discredit Jesus. Jesus didn't need demonic testimony to substantiate his claims. I believe that there's a direct connection between the demonic testimony here in verse 11 and the religious leader's accusation that Jesus was empowered by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons, in verse 22. This was part of the enemy's attempt to deliberately discredit Jesus. The enemy uses the same tactic against the Christian in an attempt to discourage them. He will attempt to discredit us in the eyes of others, smearing our credibility and destroying our reputation as a believer. It is an agonizing experience to be discredited, especially when you didn't do anything wrong. Have you heard of a political smear campaign designed to discredit a political leader? Political parties do this all the time. They discredit their opponents in order to gain credit with the public. Likewise, the devil has a smear campaign for Christians. I remember reading a booklet against the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association exposing their unchristian practices. This booklet was written by a faith-based religious group. They were attempting to discredit a Christian ministry. We don't need the devil or the world to discredit Christianity. Christians are now doing it to each other. The secular media does a good job at discrediting Christians. As soon as there is any dirt on a Christian ministry, they are quick to report it. Have you noticed how Christians are portrayed in the movies? Christians are often portrayed as angry, legalistic, and dysfunctional religious weirdos. This is the film industry's caricature of a Christian. All of us have experienced the hurt of being discredited. 
To be discredited means that we have been blamed, defamed, disbelieved, discounted, disgraced, dishonored, mistrusted, questioned, reproached, slandered, and smeared. These words help us to understand the hurt and the pain being discredited causes. How are we to respond to this? Forgive your accusers. Don't respond in unforgiveness. Don't become defensive. Let God defend you. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't speak up or tell our side of the story. Live in righteousness and in truth. A consistent Christian life will prove your critics wrong. Be patient and wait for time to reveal the truth. This is the hard one. Time has a way of bringing the truth to the surface. There is some good advice in this poem called The Best Memory System. Forget the kindness that you do as soon as you have done it. Forget the praise that falls on you the moment you have won it. Forget the slander that you hear before you can repeat it. Forget each slight, each spite, each sneer, wherever you may meet it. Remember every kindness done to you whate'er its measure. Remember praise by others won and pass it on with pleasure. Remember every promise made and keep it to the letter. Remember those who lend you aid and be a grateful debtor. Remember all the happiness that comes your way in living. Forget each worry and distress. Be hopeful and forgiving. Remember good. Remember truth. Remember heavens above you. And you will find through age and youth true joy and hearts to love you. As we travel through this journey called life, there are certain things that we should forget and there are things that we should remember. What did Jesus do with the words of discreditation? He silenced the enemy. How do we deal with the words of discreditation? Forget the slander that you hear before you can repeat it. Forget each slight, each spite, each sneer whenever you may meet it. Secondly, discouragement comes through misunderstanding. Verses 20 and 21. Then the multitude came together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. Opposition to Jesus did not only come from his enemies, his own people. His close friends and members of Jesus' own family were concerned for him. The Greek word used here is an idiom for kinsmen or family. The family is mentioned in verse 31. Then his brothers and his mother came, and standing outside they sent to him, calling him. That's Mark 3 and verse 31. Word had come to them in Nazareth about his ceaseless activity, mentioned in verse 20. Here we have a glimpse of Jesus' great popularity and the demand that was placed on him by this popularity. The demand on him was such that proper meals were not possible. Verse 20, 
the news of the demands placed on him by the crowd got back to the family. Many ministries have been ruined because of popularity and fame. It was the impression of Jesus' family that Jesus was not looking after himself, and they set out to rescue him and to take him by force if necessary. The family came to lay hold of him. That's the words of the New King James Version. To take custody of him are the words used in the New American Standard. And the NIV uses these words, to take charge of him. So the family came to lay hold of him. The idea expressed here is to take him by force or to arrest him. Why? Because they believed that he was out of his mind, that he had lost his senses. They became convinced that Jesus had become mentally unbalanced. They came from Nazareth to Capernaum, a day's journey, to rescue Jesus. His family clearly misunderstood what Jesus was doing. Jesus was human. Just think of how he must have felt in this situation. Jesus was doing the Father's business. He was completely misunderstood by his family and friends. His family expressed suspicious concern for his mental competence. They were troubled by him and concerned for him. They had come to intervene and to rescue him. They showed no trust or confidence in him. Jesus must have felt hurt and betrayed by his family. A man's enemies will be those of his own household. Matthew 10, verse 36. This was probably the way Jesus felt at this time. On more than one occasion, Satan had used those close to Jesus to tempt him. Peter, after Jesus predicted his death and resurrection, said this, Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. That's found in Matthew 16, verses 22 and 23. In this episode, Peter was rebuking Jesus for suggesting that he should die and be crucified for the sins of mankind. Peter actually rebukes Jesus for saying this, that this should not be his destiny, that this should not be his fate. But Peter was wrong. Peter was mindful of the things of men, but not mindful of the things of God. And Jesus rebuked Peter for this. Satan was literally using Peter to discourage Jesus Christ from going to the cross. On this occasion, Satan was using Jesus' family to discourage him. I'm sure that Jesus felt misunderstood by his family. Paul was also called mad by Festus. Now, as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. That's Acts 26 and verse 24. So Festus was literally calling Paul crazy. Did you know that D.L. Moody was called Crazy Moody by the people of Chicago? Misunderstanding by those closest to us is the severest attack that one can receive. 
and it is far more severe than many of the other kinds of attacks that the enemy uses against us. There's recently a story of a successful pastor whose ministry has touched millions of people, but his ministry didn't start out that way. This man's father owned a successful business and was very powerful and wealthy. The father assumed that his son would eventually take over the family business. In college, this man came to the conclusion that God wanted him to go into the ministry. The son knew that his father would be furious with the direction that he was taking. The son was strong enough to risk the loss of approval by his father in order to do what God called him to do. Yes, we can be misunderstood even though we are following the will of God. How are we to respond to misunderstanding? Forgive those that have hurt you. Don't let the response of others, no matter how hurtful, deter you from doing the known will of God. For whosoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and mother. That's Mark 3 and verse 35. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. That's John 4 and verse 34. These are the words of Jesus. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. Recheck your direction. Problems don't always indicate that we are off track. Expect that people will become upset with some of your decisions and deal appropriately with them. Stay on course. These are the things that we are to do when we're misunderstood. What did Jesus do with words of misunderstanding? He rechecked his direction. Was he doing the will of the Father? Yes, he was walking in the will of the Father. Jesus continued to do the will of his Father. Jesus was not only discredited, he was not only misunderstood, but he was also accused. Thirdly, discouragement comes through accusation. Verse 22, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of demons he casts out demons. When the family arrived at Capernaum, they found the Lord engaged in a controversy with the scribes from Jerusalem. Verse 22, The scribes were a delegation from Jerusalem, a hundred miles south. It seemed that they had come all that way to investigate the ministry of Jesus. The ministry of Jesus was not accepted by official Judaism. Jesus' ministry was looked upon as radical and controversial. There were many opinions about the ministry of Jesus. The scribes and the teachers of the Jewish law were more harsh and direct in their assessment of Jesus. Verse 22, He has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of demons he casts out demons. Notice that they did not question the miraculous aspect of Jesus' ministry. Many had seen it in action, but they questioned where he got his power from. They accused him of being possessed by Beelzebub, literally the Lord of the Flies, another name for Satan. Beelzebub, Lord of the Demons, or Lord of the Flies, 
was the Canaanite god mentioned in 2 Kings 1, verses 2 and 3. This was an accusation which was being leveled at Jesus. This false charge demonstrates a hardness of heart that the religious leaders possessed. Jesus operated using satanic power to do his miracles, including casting out demons. This was not just a one-time accusation by the scribes. The imperfect verb tense is used here, suggesting that they repeatedly accused him of being in league with Satan to perform his miracles. This was their explanation for the supernatural aspects of Jesus' ministry. The current accepted opinion by many of the religious leaders, Jesus was empowered by Satan to do what he was doing. Jesus was not looked upon with respect or with high regard by many of the religious leaders of Israel. Instead, he was tolerated and looked upon with suspicion as a troublemaker. If anyone was in a position to properly evaluate the teachings and the claims of Jesus according to what was written in the scriptures, these religious leaders had that skill to investigate properly. They rejected Jesus, the Son, because they didn't know the Father. You see, if you know the Father, you will recognize the Son. Jesus challenged their accusation in verses 23 to 30. Jesus asked them, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. Jesus shows the absurdity of their thinking. So they watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. That's Mark 3 and verse 2. See, these religious leaders were laying in wait to accuse him. They watched him closely. They investigated him closely to see if they could find fault with him. They were lying in wait to trap him. They were watching him in order to find fault, to find something wrong with him. They were not looking at him to see if his ministry was authentic. They were looking to find fault with him. To be accused of something wrong and looked upon by others as guilty when you are innocent of doing nothing wrong is a difficult place to be in. And this was the place that Jesus was in. Stephen Truscott, he was accused of murdering a 12-year-old girl in Clinton in 1952. He was 14 years old at the time, jailed for 10 years for a murder he didn't commit, and over 50 years later, still trying to clear his name. He is still in the news in 2007. At 14, his life was forever changed, and now in his mid-60s, he has spent most of his life trying to get free of the reputation of being a murderer and to clear his name. Just think of how that must feel to live most of your life being labeled as a murderer of a 12-year-old girl and not having done it and trying to clear a name during all that time. What do you do when someone accuses you? Do you get angry? This is usually defensive because of hurt. 
Do you get even? Find a way to repay them for the hurt that they have caused you? Or do you get offended? You feel like a victim. Do you pull others into your offense? We want the sympathy of other people. And so we tell our story and we get them to sympathize with us against the offender. Or do you forgive them? This is what the Bible says we should do. What is the right response to accusation? Forgive your accusers. Don't become defensive, responding to your accusers with denial or counter-accusations. Seek to reconcile through inviting your critics to explain themselves and seek to understand their problem with you. This is called negative inquiry. It's a good thing to do. If differences aren't being reconciled, do what you believe is right and accept the consequences. The disapproval, the misunderstanding, and continued accusation of others. You have to live with that, but you need to continue to do the right thing. This is what Jesus did. He had to live with this ongoing accusation of the religious leaders, but he continued to do the Father's will. He did not allow their accusations to change his way of doing things, but he continued to do the Father's will. And that's what we must do. We must continue to do the Father's will, even though we're being misunderstood and even though we're being accused. Jesus was discredited, misunderstood, and accused. Jesus, being human like the rest of us, would have wrestled with despair and discouragement. This is how the enemy of our soul works to bring us to a place of discouragement. Remember, we have the key called promise to escape doubt, despair, and discouragement. Maybe you find yourself in a similar place today. Perhaps you feel discredited or devalued. Or maybe you feel misunderstood by those who you think should understand. Or maybe you are falling under the weight of accusation. I encourage you to seek help from someone. And even more importantly, turn to God, turn to His Word, and turn to His people for help. Join us in two weeks for our next episode of Relevant Truth. Never miss an episode of the podcast by subscribing on iTunes. If you like the podcast, why not rate and review the podcast on iTunes? You can also visit my website, RelevantTruthPodcast.com, where you'll find an archive of all of these messages and book recommendations. You can contact me at RockRevMason79 at gmail.com. That is R-O-C-K-Rock, R-E-V, Rev, M-A-S-O-N, Mason, 79 at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.